We are in Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15, and I'm going to begin by just reading the first two verses to just set the scene for what we're going to be looking at this morning. Acts 15, verses 1 and 2. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, here's what they were teaching them, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. This sets the scene, Acts 15, 2. There is no small degree of dissension and there is debate. Luke does not take us into the details of what went on in Antioch, but you have to assume with Paul and Barnabas engaged with these teachers who have come from Jerusalem, this was probably fairly intense discussion. That word for dissension is the idea of taking a stand. It means I will oppose you to your face. I, I, I don't just think you're wrong, I'm actually willing to stand up and say to you, I believe that you are wrong. And so that when it says no small dissension, it's saying there is, there is intense disagreement. Isn't it great that we as Christians today don't have to worry about dissension or debate? <laughs> there is nothing new under the sun. Here we are in the 21st century and and we are from, as familiar with the idea of dissension and debate amongst the community of believers as they were in the first century. They had to wrestle through matters of theology and practice, and we, we do the same. There are still, there's still sadly disagreements. Churches still split. Christians still break fellowship with one another over various issues that come up. Obviously, there are times when the, the, the matters are of such significance, and, and we'll see that here this morning, that, that, that are such uh, doctrinal implications that indeed there is uh, no possibility to simply agree to disagree. There must be a, a deciding and, and, and perhaps even a, a break in fellowship. There are times when there are matters of less importance and yet they're still serious and there's still strong feelings involve maybe convictions to, to one degree or another, and, and it's still difficult to preserve unity and fellowship in, in some way. And then there are those times when we just we, we dig down and we love each other and work through it. We, we do our best to try to come to some place where the disagreement is brought to some level of resolution. Uh, Bible-believing Christians who are committed to Bible-preaching churches still face moments when fellowship and unity are threatened. When one person's practice or one local church's practice does not sit well with another, and while all sides may agree on, on biblical authority and, and submitting to the authority of Scripture and the truth of the gospel, they may still differ on, on lesser matters that disrupt fellowship in some way and that even in some cases lead to separation. On this side of eternity... We will not always have perfect harmony and unity. It's difficult to achieve, even harder to maintain. Uh, and in, in my lifetime, and probably for most of yours, there has never been a season quite like this one, where the external pressures that are going on in the world are at the doorstep of the church and are pressing the church in all different directions and causing the potential for conflict within the evangelical community. Um, COVID, ethnic strife, presidential election. You take any one of those and they are difficult enough and, and by God's grace and providence, we've got them all. They're, they're all here together and we're, we're walking through 
all of them, and all of them have the ability to dis disrupt the unity of brothers and sisters in Christ. And so it is hard, Ephesians 2, and uh, Ephesians 4, I should say, when Paul begins his practical application of the doctrines he has taught in the beginning of Ephesians. In Ephesians 4, he begins and, and urges that we walk in all humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's the calling in Scripture. The reality is what we see here in Acts 15. It doesn't always come easy. It doesn't just happen naturally. And so Acts 15 sort of lets us get a chance to see the early church deal with dissension and debate over some crucial issues. These are not just simple sort of, you know, what color should the carpeting be or, or those sorts of issues. These are significant matters that are before the church and they are having to wrestle through them. And we get a chance in Acts 15 to watch them do this and to learn. And so I, I, I hope as we go through this, we get a sense for, for watching how the church leaders here working with the body, with the brethren, had to arrive at some clear and, and defining statements to deal with the problem they were facing and then lovingly communicate that in, in a way that would teach the other believers who weren't there for that discussion. So I'm going to suggest to you at the end this morning that there are three lessons I think we can get from this passage on this path to unity. But I, I think it's important that we understand the nature of the conflict that's going on, what it is that they're wrestling with. The conflict was real. God graciously guides them through it to, to the point that at the end of this section, verse 35, the word of God is being preached and taught and many are responding and, and there is good news at the end of this, but, but we need to walk through it and see the conflict. And so to set the scene, chapter 15 says, some men came down from Judea. We are in Antioch. That's, that's where we left off in chapter 14. If you remember Antioch and Syria, northeast corner above the, the, the Mediterranean, that, that's where this church has begun. That is a combination of Jews and Gentiles. It's become a pivotal sending church. It's the one that Paul and Barnabas spent at least a year in helping to ground the church. So it's a significant church. When it says that men came down from Judea, this just goes back to the traditional Jewish perspective. Judea is where Jerusalem is. Everything is down from Jerusalem, regardless of altitude or geographic direction. We look at the map and it's you're going north to, to Antioch and we would say they came up from Jerusalem. Everything is down from Jerusalem. And so they, they come to Antioch and they begin to stir up trouble. And essentially the message of these teachers when they arrive in Antioch to a church that has been this tremendous mix of Jews and Gentiles, their message is, listen, you Gentiles, you can believe in our Jewish Messiah. We, we welcome you but you need to become practicing Jews in order to believe in our Messiah. You've, you've got to come on the basis of what we believe the traditions to be, and you've got to practice what we believe Judaism to be in order to enter into the, the, the people of God. That, that's the issue that triggers this. Some Jews who claim to believe in Jesus as their Messiah are, are, are clearly struggling in their own understanding of the gospel and are now taking that struggle and, and turning it back on Gentiles and bringing confusion to the Gentiles by saying, listen, you can become part of the people of God, but the people of God are us and you've got to become one of us in order to become one of them, essentially, to become a, a, a follower of, of Jesus Christ. 
That's why they demand this ritual of circumcision for male Gentiles who, who want to convert, but, but that is not their only demand. If you look down at verse 5, they add to this, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. This is where it gets particularly complicated, and it begins to move into error. The, the area of, of, of circumcision, the act of circumcision, preceded the, the, the giving of the law to Moses. We go back to the time of Abraham in Genesis 17, when God commands Abraham and, and all of the males in his household, all of the servants, to be circumcised as a sign of God's covenant with Abraham. And, and so these these first century Jewish believers see circumcision as sort of a rite of initiation into the people of God over and above the, uh, the law, apart from the, the giving of the law. That, that's not an entirely illogical expectation in light of us going back to Abraham. The, the question, though, that, that they're not wrestling with, that, that Paul has begun to wrestle with, and Peter and others, is does God actually continue this requirement? Is this actually an expectation that we should impose on Gentiles? Do we have any direction from God? Do we have any evidence from God from what we've seen in him saving sinners, Gentile sinners, that this is still some sort of expectation, or are we simply now turning this into man's tradition? That's the, the circumcision piece of it. The other, the, the, the law is, is a whole nother issue because now they, are, now they are erring on doctrine. Now they are entering into the place of saying, that there is more than just faith in Jesus Christ. They are adding to the gospel and saying, you've got to not only become one of us by virtue of right of initiation, but now you're going to have to keep the ceremonial pieces of the Mosaic law and the dietary pieces of the Mosaic law. And, and all of that's going to be part of your, your justification. And so that's where this becomes a matter of false teaching. We know this. We, we, we know that this is false teaching, and we know this troubled the early church by virtue of the book of Galatians. We studied Galatians a while back, and that, that letter to the churches in Galatia was probably written right before this, this council in Acts 15, at some time prior to that. And so this was already an issue of false teachers coming and saying, come back to the Jewish law, embrace the Jewish law as part of your justification in Christ. And, and, and Galatians stresses the point that Romans would later enforce that no one, no one is justified by keeping the law. Scripture is abundantly clear that law keeping does not save anyone. In fact, if you're going to use law keeping for justification, you must be perfect. No one is perfect. Therefore, we all fail. We're lawbreakers by nature. And so Galatians 2.16 says, no one is justified by works of the law. So what's being brought into Antioch from these Jewish teachers who, who profess belief in Christ, where their hearts are at, Luke, Luke doesn't judge for us, scripture doesn't judge, but, but they are now leading people into false teaching. They're saying, welcome, Gentiles, to the people of God. We're glad to have you here, but you need to come on our terms. You need to come on our understanding of the Old Testament scriptures, and you need to keep the traditions that, that we believe you should keep. You need to abide by the law and all of its dietary ceremonial elements. The irony, of course, in all of this is that for centuries, the Jewish people had been proving the impossibility of keeping the law. 
The, 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 the coming of the Messiah was in response to the law condemning them. It, it was centuries of, of realizing that they could not possibly keep the law. They couldn't keep it perfectly. They must have a savior. They need a sinless sacrifice to give himself in their place. And, and so the law has pointed forward again and again to the need for a sacrifice for sinners who is Jesus Christ. And now here they are trying to return back to some form of bondage. God's law was never meant to save people, but rather to drive them to Jesus by exposing their guilt. God's law was meant to say, here is God's holy, perfect standard. Can you keep it? No, I, I fail miserably in it. Therefore, you need a perfect sacrifice. You need Jesus Christ, the Savior. And now these, these Gentile sinners who have run to Jesus for forgiveness are now facing teaching that says, ah, that's not enough. You, you got to you got to run back to the bondage of the law, and you've got to somehow find a way to, to observe it. So this teaching is fundamentally distorting the gospel, that, that, that Jesus Christ, and the, and the gospel is simply that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came in flesh, lived a perfect life, fulfilled the law perfectly, and therefore was the acceptable sacrifice before his Father. He gave himself on the cross to die for sinners, taking our sin on himself, none, nothing of his own. He committed no sin. He takes ours. He's punished for it. And he rises from the dead to show that justification now is possible through faith in Jesus Christ, by turning from sin and believing in Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Jesus accomplished what you and I could never do. We cannot bring works to God and, and prove ourselves. We cannot bring good deeds and, and, and try to outweigh bad deeds and somehow think that that's enough. We must trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ alone. That's what triggers this dissension in Acts 15. Is these teachers going to Antioch where Paul and Barnabas are and beginning to say to Gentiles, there's, there's a club here and there's membership required and here's what's required for membership. What you've done so far is not enough. And, and, and it would be fascinating to hear what Paul's actual verbal face-to-face -face response was to, to all of that, but, but we don't get that other than that there was dissension and debate, and it is threatening to tear the early church apart. We see that pretty clearly here in Acts 15. I want to suggest to you, though, this morning that there is another extreme that's at play here in Acts 15. There, there's sort of an opposite extreme that is also a consideration. When this matter goes to Jerusalem and it goes to the apostles and the elders to sort through there's another piece of this that they have to wrestle through, and we'll see it. I, I want to read through a longer section here. We're going to pick up in verse 6 and read all the way down through verse 21. It says, Now they've come from Antioch. They've come down to Jerusalem. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Let me pause there. Remember the story of Cornelius. Peter is sent to Cornelius, the whole vision of the food. Don't call this unclean. Don't label Gentiles unclean. Go to them and preach. And so Peter's recounting that. He says, You know that I was sent to go, and they have believed. Verse 8. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he, God, made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? 
But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, goes back to the book of Amos, just as it is written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, James says, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogue. Let me stop there. All right. What I'm ultimately going to get us to is how God works them through to, to unity, how he brings them together. But I just I want to take a few minutes and just look at the, that last piece and the four instructions that James says, I believe we should send to the Gentiles. We should not trouble them further. It should be clear that you have come to Christ by faith, and, and that's what's expected. But then he adds these four things that they must abstain from. In, in our concern for the, the gospel and the, the twisting of the gospel by those who are trying to impose the law, we sometimes, I think, overlook this opposite extreme that is a concern for Jewish believers, as they are looking at the Gentile world, Gentile world is concerned by Jewish believers who are telling them, well, you got to watch your diet stuff, and, and we still may break fellowship with you over food. There's also a concern on the other side. And, and, and this is the, the idea that for a Gentile, on the one side, for a Gentile to be saved by the Messiah, he must become a Jew and practice the law. But on the other side is the view that a Gentile who comes to faith in Christ does not need to leave behind the lifestyle that he has been a part of before in terms of its close bonds with idolatry and with feasts that go on in pagan temples. Just as the Jews are arguing from the perspective of they have been rooted in this wrong teaching about the law and, and, and being held in bondage to the law, so the Gentiles have been rooted in this deep history of idolatry, of living in cultures where everything revolves around idolatry and the temple, the idol temple, and the feasts that are held, and those are sort of the big community events. New Testament scholars spend a lot of time sort of walking through these four points of abstaining in verses 19 and 20. The council agrees on them, puts them in the form of a letter. James says, I think it's these four things we need to tell them to abstain from. Council agrees. They put it in a letter that's distributed. Look down at verse uh, 28 as they have agreed on this. For it seemed good. This is now they're, they're sending the letter out. For it seemed good, Acts 15, 28, to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. This instruction raises some questions. It, we know that the New Testament speaks a great deal to conduct of believers and how we are to walk worthy. Why single out idolatry and immorality, which seem like 
two of the more obvious ones. I mean, we can go back to the, the 10 in Exodus 20, and we know that these are, are high on the list. So why single out these? And then you've got this issue of connection with blood. I don't know about you, but there have been points when I've pondered that and wondered, does, does that mean then that if, if, if I order my, my steak very rare, am I on the edge? And, and Am I challenging what, what's being said here? The reality is, is that in the, the Gentile world of the first century and even prior to that, these four things all had something very much in common that would have been familiar to, to most Gentiles. They were all connected to worship in idol temples. They were all connected to the, the feasts that were regularly held in the idol temples in their community. Things like meat sacrificed to idols, blood of an animal that was used and even consumed in pagan rituals, the, the strangling of animals so that the blood was not drained out of it, and then temple prostitution. These were all components that were regular parts of feasts that went on inside of these pagan temples. And, and the feasts were a common part of everyday life for Gentiles. We might, we might assume that rituals and idol temples were something that were just like occasional things, sort of, sort of like we, we gather in, in here like once a week and we come together for worship. But the, the reality is, is that the idol temple was, again, a, a common gathering point, particularly for Gentile males. New, tel New Testament scholars tell us in those days, idol temples were their restaurants and, and the feasts where they gathered were, were major gatherings. They were major and common gatherings. Archaeologists shows that many of the, the temple sites for false gods had large dining rooms for receptions and feasts. This is a place where they, they gathered for all of the activities that went on in connection with a feast. All that, that, that James is bringing up here that are troubling as, as the Gentiles are coming out of that lifestyle where that is normal. It is part of what they do in, in, in those days. From what scholars tell us, meat was very expensive. The average working class guy was, was generally not going to, to buy meat for a meal. There was a lot of agricultural stuff. There was sheep. There was other stuff. But, but as far as, as getting a big old steak, he probably was not going to be able to do that. But the place where he might be able to enjoy that was at an, at an idol feast. That was the place where they, they, they could then go and, and have that sort of celebration. There, there was a great deal of immorality that was regularly practiced at those temples. Prostitution was a normal part. And so the, the combination then of, of, of these rituals involving meat sacrifice to idols and sexual immorality was all a part of what they are coming out of as Gentiles in communities that have not been touched by the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the norm them. It is what they are used to. It is what they have been practicing. It is where they have been going for, for, for fellowship, if you will, and it is all common. Paul addresses this in, in 1 Corinthians, um, where he's speaking in particular to some of the, the, this particular idol worship and these feasts. And in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, one of the things he makes the point of is, listen, if you, if you go to the butcher and you buy meat and, and find out that that was meat sacrificed to an idol, that, that shouldn't trouble your conscience. You, you weren't participating in the sacrifice. You weren't participating in the festival around it. It's just meat. And so in 1 Corinthians 8, 8, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. 
But in chapter 10, and I, I encourage you in the questions there in your sermon notes to read a, a larger section of chapter 10, he draws this line in the sand and, and says, but you need to flee idolatry. The, the, the meat is one issue, but your participation in what goes on around that meat, that's off limits. He says in 1 Corinthians 10, 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. If you look at that passage in, in 1 Corinthians 10, he's clearly talking about this sort of feast of coming together. And, and you can't call yourself a believer in Jesus Christ who gathers with other Christians and who celebrates the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ and has meals together with them, who then also lives this separate life of going off to having feasts in the idol temple and somehow find that those two are compatible. They're not. You must flee the one and run to the other. You cannot have fellowship with that pagan temple. It is not compatible with life in Christ. A Gentile who came to faith in Christ may not have readily, easily understood this. Think about those of you who became believers as adults. You probably had areas of your life that, that, that you commonly lived that, that as you looked at over time in, in the light of Scripture, you said, ah, I can't really act this way anymore. This isn't actually pleasing to God. And, and, and you begin by the Spirit's power and by God's grace to, to change things. This is one of those areas where they are now being told you cannot be fellowshipping with Christ and his body while still essentially fellowshipping with demons by going to idol feasts that take place at pagan temples. That's the second divisive issue in Acts 15. For Gentiles who came to faith in Christ, this was a hard adjustment and yet a necessary one. The activity that went on in those temples was godless and immoral, and yet it was part of life in the community, and they were used to it. We know from Jewish writings outside of the scriptures that the Jews were deeply offended by the things they knew went on in these pagan temples. They knew there was debauchery, and they despised it. And so you, you can begin to see why James and the council are, are, are walking between two extremes as, as they're navigating this. From the Jews who are somehow concerned to preserve holiness to the, to the false point of saying, well, you got to abide by the law, to the Gentiles who have found great liberty and freedom in Christ and, and, and are not leaving behind some of these old ways. That's why James and the council didn't stop and simply say, if, if there was only one issue here, they would have just said, don't, don't trouble the Gentiles anymore. They believe in Christ. That's enough. Just trust in Christ, and, and that's enough. They actually go on, and they give these four areas of abstaining because this is a, another potential crisis. One scholar puts it this way. The issue is not just where one might find one or another of the four elements of the decree in isolation, but in what social setting one might find them together. Here the answer is, again, likely to be in a temple, not in a home, and in particular at a temple feast. The message that James, the apostles, the elders with the church send now is your salvation is based on faith in Christ. You do not need to go through an initiation rite to enter into Judaism. You certainly do not need to keep the law. Our forefathers could not bear that load, nor should you. But you are now in Christ. If you are trusting in him, you must live differently. You must flee from this stuff. It's not enough to turn from idols to God. You need to flee idolatry and all of the temple activities that are associated with it that you've been joined to before Christ. You can't keep doing that. 
The Jews shouldn't bind your conscience with false commands. You must no longer fellowship with idolatry as you did before. You see the two sides in this that are pulling at this? Jews and Gentiles come together. And, and you can see, when you see both perspectives here, that this is not just for us. We, we look at the beginning of this and go, well, this is obvious. This is false teaching. Law keeping can't be done. That's clear. You tell them it's by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, and it's settled. But, but, but when you see that there's two tensions pulling here, you begin to understand that the council is having to walk through the potential for huge division again between Jews and Gentiles and how they're going to proceed forward as believers in Christ striving to follow after a holy God. As Jews and Gentiles come together, the Jews are struggling to shed their old, failed, scrupulous attempts to abide by the law. Gentile converts are struggling with their attachments to old sinful practices in those temples. And in this new community, both ran the risk of severely alienating the other. The, the statements of the one that you must do it this way and the statements of the other that we have freedom to do it this way, you can see the, just the potential for dissension and debate and breaking of fellowship. It, think about in, in Galatians, in Galatians chapter 2, where Paul describes Peter Peter, who, who here in Acts 15 says, God used me to go to Cornelius and to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. I have seen it with my own eyes that God saved them just like he did us, poured out the same spirit in the same measure. They are saved just like us. And so Peter goes up to Antioch to this mixed church, and it says that he is having fellowship and meal with the Gentiles, and he is enjoying time with them until what? Until some of these Jews come up. From Jerusalem, and Peter suddenly is intimidated. Fear of man kicks in, and Peter leaves the table with the Gentiles and retreats from them. It says he drew back and separated himself from the Gentiles for fear of what the Jews would think. And what does Paul say in Galatians? You hypocrite. That is hypocritical behavior. You're, you're the one who, who saw the whole vision about the, the food and, and not calling these people unclean, and now because you're afraid of what others are thinking, you're, you're breaking fellowship. That just emphasizes what's going on here in Acts chapter 15. This is a, a major controversy, and, and, and let's be fair here. There were certainly false teachers who were well off the map and, and distorting the gospel, but there were also many sincere Jewish believers who were simply struggling in their relationship with the law, who had spent their lifetimes under rabbis who had told them, you've got to do this, and you've got to do that, and you've got to carry out this ritual, and you can't eat that, and you can't eat this. And, and, and they are sincerely now struggling with what does freedom in Christ mean? How, how is it that you now say that all food is clean? I, I have to change my whole way of thinking about this. And there's many sincere Gentile believers who are struggling with their relationship to pagan temples. That's, that's, where, I, that's where I go and hang out with the guys. That's just what we've done. I believe in Jesus, and, and I, I'm not worshiping that idol. I'm just taking part in a feast, and they're struggling with this. Two very opposite extremes, deeply rooted in their experience, that had to be addressed wisely and humbly to stop the spread of conflict in the body of Christ. All right, here's, here's the question. You're thinking, oh, now you're getting to the three points about unity. These are shorter, trust me. How does God lead them through this? How do they arrive at a place then of resolving? I, I just really wanted you to see the, the tension there because I, I want you to appreciate what it is that, that they're navigating at this point. How do they find unity in the midst of this and what can we learn? We who live in one of the most 
polarizing times in recent history where debate and dissension are perpetually at the doorstep of every local church. What can we take from this and, and navigate? Three things, I'm going to put them all in the form of a question we can ask ourselves. Number one, are you humbly having conversations with other believers about whatever the problem is, about whatever the, the, the point of dispute or dissension is? Are you humbly having conversations with other believers? This isn't, are you, are you sort of tattletailing on the other side or looking for people to affirm your point of view? Are you humbly engaged in conversation, seeking wisdom about whatever that point of dissension is? I go there because verse 2 says the church at Antioch's response was not to simply kick these guys out and say, don't teach this here anymore. That certainly, that they, they put up the wall on, on the false teaching. But they send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem to sit down with the apostles and the elders. And, and verse 6 of Acts 15 says, they all met to consider this matter. New American Standard says that to look into this matter. The, the, the verb is, is really to look at, to examine. To, to take this this matter, this controversial teaching, and to examine it. And so what did they do? They, Paul, who we often think of as maybe a little on the headstrong and, you know, sort of take charge of things, doesn't simply lay down a dictate and say, this is what it is, done. But rather, Paul and Barnabas go to Jerusalem, and the elders and the apostles take this, this flashpoint, and they set it on the table, and they examine it through the lens of Scripture, and, and they they graciously talk, and they humbly listen, and there is engagement that goes back and forth in this. They didn't run from the controversy. They didn't retreat to name-calling and slogans, hashtag false teachers, hashtag idol feast people, you know, that kind of stuff. They sat down, and they conversed. Luke, Luke gives us the abbreviated version because, in fact, he says in verse 17, there was much debate before he gets into Peter and then Paul and Barnabas. So, so Luke is taking what is no doubt hours or days of conversation and sort of summarizing it under the, there was a lot of debate that went on. There was a lot of conversation that took place. Peter spoke, and Paul and Barnabas spoke. He doesn't even tell us all that Paul and Barnabas said. And then James sums it all up. After he did, verse 22 says, the resolution, it says, seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church. No one lone rangered this. They discussed this. They, 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 they got together with godly leaders, godly leaders who had been put in positions by, by God, and, and they, they talked it through. This is a great model for us. Are you humbly having conversations Graciously talking, humbly listening, doing your best to engage with other believers about the problem. All right, that's the first one. Don't, don't stop there. That in and of itself is far from being sufficient because number two question is, is there a matter of biblical authority at stake? Having a wise conversation, graciously speaking, humbly listening, does not mean that all sides in a disagreement are of equal merit. They may be, but it doesn't necessarily, just because we're going to sit down and have a gracious, humble conversation, doesn't mean that all sides come to the table with equal merit. In the case of Acts 15, as the truth was applied, it becomes very clear that there is a side here that is wrong. That, that, that this teaching that you must abide by the law in order to be justified is 
proven from biblical teaching and from the experience of the apostles to be wrong. You cannot force Gentiles back under the law. There was a fundamental matter of biblical authority. Either a person is saved by faith alone in Christ alone, or we're into a whole mishmash of, of, of what it could be, of what that salvation is. And so there is, there's a clear side of this once biblical authority is brought to bear that says, no, we're not going to trouble them any further with what you're trying to say because you're wrong. It is, it is by faith, it is by turning and repenting of your sin and trusting in Christ. In verses 7, 8, 9, Paul, uh, uh, Peter, I should say, describes how God saved the Gentiles. That the, the, he summarizes sort of the Cornelius experience. Gentiles repented of their unbelief. They trusted in Jesus Christ. They received the same spirit that the Jewish believers received at conversion in Acts chapter 2. Peter was speaking from his experience. And let me be careful here because we got Peter speaking from his own firsthand eyewitness experience and we're talking about biblical authority. The fact is what Peter experienced is recorded in scripture and now stands to us as authoritative from God. So when Peter goes to Cornelius and God sends down the spirit in his fullness as he did on the Jews, God is authoritatively saying, I have saved them just like I saved you and the Jews. It is by their turning from sin and their trusting in Christ that I have saved them. And so there is a, there is a biblical um, statement here that is fundamentally clear. God authoritatively made it clear that repentance and faith are what save a person, not conversion to Judaism or, or efforts to keep the law. In, in, in fact, in verses 16 and 17, James, and the James speaking here, is the, the, this is the earthly brother of Jesus, the one who comes to faith, after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The other James, the brother of John, we know has already been executed. So in 16 and 17, James quotes from the book of Amos. You talk about, again, is, is there biblical authority to apply to this? James says, listen, it, Amos told us that God would be bringing Gentiles into this tent, that God would be bringing Gentiles into the people of God. And so this, th there's nothing here that runs counter. There was nothing that, that the prophet said that, well, they're going to have to go through rituals and they're going to have to do this and that. God said that he would do this and we are seeing the fulfillment of it. In the same way, the warnings to the Gentile believers to abstain from idol feasts, there's nothing vague here. You can't do this anymore. We're not going to trouble you. You put your faith in Christ, but you can't do this anymore. This is not who you are as a believer in Jesus Christ, and you can no longer walk in darkness. You cannot have fellowship with idols while claiming to worship Jesus Christ. It's either one or the other, and you must flee idolatry. When there are issues that are clearly of, of biblical authority, we should still have gracious conversations. And we should still humbly listen and, and, and strive to, to, to pursue teachable moments in these. But ultimately, God's truth must stand. If the Bible says clearly, this is what it is, this is what God forbids, or this is what God commends, then we need to be willing to stand on that and say, this is a matter of biblical authority. This is, this is where we must be. Or, or even are there, are there clear biblical principles that we can sort of apply to the conversation? Our, our culture loves to keep falling back on this idea that you have your truth and I have mine and somehow both are just equally valid. That is, that is not only mind-blowingly illogical that you can have two identical systems of truth that conflict and are opposite with each other and both are valid and make perfect sense. You, you can't 
do that that, and say that, oh, they they both exist and and your truth and my truth are both equally valid. You you can't say that the truth about the gospel of Jesus Christ and and the truth about Islam are, are both equally valid truths about God. There is either faith in Christ alone, by grace alone, or there's not. And so we need to push back that our Savior said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And so there are places where Scripture is clear and precise, and we need to stand on that. And when we are dealing with difficult and divisive issues, we need to labor to search for biblical wisdom. Is there biblical authority that speaks to this? Are there biblical principles that can at least help me in my thinking about this? And where we lack those authoritative statements, then we keep having conversations. We keep holding our preferences and even our personal convictions loosely. We we don't try to impose them. If we, we don't have chapter and verse to point to on those things, we hold them loosely. And we strive to love our brothers and sisters and try to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Are you humbly having conversations? Is there a matter of biblical authority? And then the last one, are you humbly seeking to defer to God-given authority? Acts 15.22 says, It seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. This is with the letter that, that summarizes the council. This council is just a sweet example of local church leaders taking up a divisive issue having wise conversations and diligently studying God's truth, talking, listening, engaging, meditating on what God is doing, seeking to apply his truth and reaching a conclusion that then brings the body of Christ together. It doesn't always work that way. Let's be honest, local church leaders are sinful and they are flawed and it doesn't always come to this sweet resolution. This is a case where it does. If you think about it, this this letter that went out really had the potential to alienate everyone. This letter, when it goes out to these churches in, in other areas who have not been part of the Jewish council and who read this, what essentially it says is, listen, Jewish believers, Gentiles who come to our Messiah don't have to be circumcised. And since Christ fulfilled the law, they are not to be bound by keeping the law. So stop it. Don't, don't try to do this to them. And, and, and you Gentile believers, you need to make a full break from that old lifestyle and the pagan feasts and the things that go on there at those temples. You need to come out from that. Everyone could potentially find something to be unhappy about. I was thinking about this this morning. I mean, could you imagine this today in the social media era? And the Jerusalem Council sends around this letter, and, and we've got 30 different opinions that are blasting this opinion and saying, oh, this is so stupid, and here's why I disagree with it, and here's why they're wrong. The the beauty of verse 22 is that they come together, and and, and we need to note the fact that James, the brother of Jesus, really is the one who who takes charge here and and says, verse 19 says, it is my judgment. So there there is an exercise of authority by one in the church that has the potential to upset both sides. And yet verse 22 says, ultimately the whole church comes together and they come behind this decision. I would submit to you that there is a willingness on the part of the Jerusalem church to strive to defer to their God-given authority, to, to say, listen, we are, we are praying, we are listening, 
We want you to communicate with us. We want, we want to have engagement on this. But ultimately, we are trusting that, that God has, has put you in this place, and we are striving to, to defer to you at this point. When it says that it seemed good to the church, the verse itself doesn't actually use the Greek word for good. It, it's the idea of an opinion. It really says that it was their mutual thought or opinion that this was right. The body was striving to unify together and come to this like-minded opinion and say, this is what we've, we, we've trusted that God has put them in leadership for. We've asked them to ponder this. We've listened to them, and we are striving to defer here. There could have been an uprising. And the dissension could have blown up in Jerusalem, and it could have spread to Antioch, and it could have traveled through South Galatia, and, and all of the local churches could have been splitting over this in, into Jewish and Gentile sects. And instead, the body is looking to its leadership for wisdom and, and thoughtful consideration, and ultimately trying to give a unified voice of assent. In the end, that sort of unity derived from conversation, from submission to biblical authority, and from striving to defer to God-given leaders enabled the ministry to return to work. Sent Paul and Barnabas, as verse 35 says, back up to Antioch, and they continued preaching and teaching, and the life of the church grew and continued to spread, and that should be our aim, to love God and his truth so much so that we will stand on biblical authority, that we will not compromise that, but to also love our neighbor enough to continue to serve that person. The aim is not to win the debate. The aim is not to force people to come to our conclusion. The aim is to glorify God by talking and listening and coming together under mutual authority of God's word and desiring to walk together in submission to it and be unified in our purpose. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the truth of, of showing us how early believers walk through difficult, cultural, historic problems, challenges, temptations. Lord, thank you for reminding us that, that there is nothing new under the sun. And so the debates that, that we encounter, that, that flow into the, the local church, even today, there's nothing new here. That there have been challenges since the beginning and us as believers having to sort through our preferences and our experiences and, and ultimately seek to yield them to the authority of your word. Help us. Help the, the community in this nation that professes faith and allegiance to the Savior Jesus Christ. All who genuinely have repented of sin and trust in Jesus Christ, help us to love you and your word, to strive to submit to its authority and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Help us to, to not compromise or backpedal on the fundamental truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us not to tolerate anything that would try to erode the, the fundamental truth that Christ died for sinners, that we must turn from sin and believe in him in order to be saved, and it is only by your grace that that occurs. Help us to stand firm on that, but to do so not as an angry people, not as a people who 
who strive to win arguments by being louder, more obnoxious, but as a people who lovingly live and preach Christ, who demonstrate humility and how we listen, who, as this council showed us, do our best to understand that those who come into life in the local church come with a whole collection of life experiences that have affected them in some way. Help us to serve them, to show them Christ, to proclaim the, the truth of the gospel and the forgiveness and the hope that is found in our Savior. Help us to do that with love and grace and humility. Father, I pray that if there's anyone listening this morning who, is, who has looked on Christianity and perhaps only seen what they see as sort of the divisive pieces or they've looked for that sort of what they would figure as hypocrisy or division, I pray, Lord, that they would see in the life of Grace Bible Church and in multitudes of other local churches that they would see a people who love you, who whose hope is in you, who trust in you, and who recognize that we are weak, frail, sinful people who have been rescued by grace. And we need your grace and your spirit to help us to love others and to serve them and to follow after the, the model of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray for our country as we enter this week that we have either anticipated or dreaded for months we thank you, Lord, that you are sovereign. Lord Jesus, you are on the throne. We worship you as king, as the one who is returning, as the one who will establish a kingdom that will last forever. Help us to rest in that. Regardless of where we are a week from now, regardless of where our country is a week from now, Cause us not to waver in our trust, in your rule, in your loving, gracious care for your people. And cause this church, Grace Bible Church, to be a lighthouse in this community that would point people to the ultimate and only true Savior and hope, who is Jesus Christ the Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.